Tonight, remembering 9-11. A photographer who's documented the changing face of Lower Manhattan for over four decades shares her unforgettable black and white pictures from that day and of the area in the 1980s, 90s, and beyond. Then meet the firefighting family carrying on the legacy of the highest ranking firefighter killed in the attacks. That's Better Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Ramon, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. For more than 40 years, New York photographer Barbara Mensch has been documenting Lower Manhattan's transformation from a rough and tumble place at the margins of the city to a playground for the rich. And in the process, her often striking and always moving black and white photographs have captured a unique beauty that often goes unnoticed. Mensch's latest book of photography, A Falling Off Place, The Transformation of Lower Manhattan, turns her lens to a seemingly unglamorous corner of the city, the Fulton Fish Market of the 1980s, as well as to the area's changing streetscapes of the 1990s and to the post-9-11 Lower Manhattan of the new millennium. Barbara Mensch's photographs have been exhibited at MoMA, the Brooklyn Museum, the Museum of the City of New York, and at other venues here and around the world. And she joins us now. Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Barbara, let me just start with the obvious question. How did you decide, wh why did you decide to, to put this collection of photographs in this book? What moved you? Well, several years ago, I was uh, asked by the Howard Hughes Corporation and celebrity chef Jean-Georges to do an installation of my uh, photographs at the newly renovated tin building. Um, so as a result of that, I had to go through all my early photographs and, you know, work on the project and the proposal. And in, in that, uh, activity, I realized I had all of these photographs that I had not considered before. So that was basically the impetus. So, you know, the book is divided into three parts, uh, the eighties, the nineties and the new millennium. So let's start with part one, the eighties, which is almost completely dominated by the Fulton Fish Market, what you guys, you of the of the neighborhood call the market, uh, a place where you obviously spent a lot of time as a young photographer, as a young artist. First of all, what drew you to this world that was largely dominated by gritty working class men? Um, and in the background, always, you know, the connections to the mob or rumors to connections to the mob. What drew you to it? Well, I moved into that area, which at that time was largely uninhabited. There were several artists living in the warehouses. But um, if you walked around at night, you would start to see this in uninhabited neighborhood come alive with all these uh, very, very intense men, 
working with their physical hands uh, and doing physical labor. And I was very, very intrigued by what was going on down there. And I felt for my whole life very competitive with men. And I wanted to really, really, really try and do a story about their lives and what went on down there. Well, listen, um, you know, from the intimate portraits that you captured, it's of, of the place and of the people, it's obvious that they welcomed you into okay. into that into their community. How difficult was that? Well, it took years. And you have to remember that the most important thing to know about this uh, situation was at the time that I started photographing down there, it was also the time when Rudolph Giuliani was doing his, as a federal prosecutor, doing his investigations into criminality uh, in the Fulton Fish Market, the mob. So it was sort of like a, a double, doubly difficult situation for me because the men thought I was a federal agent. Oh, wow. wow. Well, obviously you won them over. Um, and, and the portraits are, 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 are unbelievable. I mean, they're, they're just, they're just very powerful. Um, and, and, and you, and you have these, these guys come off as really cool and confident, you know, they were, and, that was and, their characters. That right. was their and they're characters. almost, and they're almost like, like from the 19th century or the early 20th century, rather than from the 1980s, like the fish market itself is. Yeah. Um, is there one backstory from one of these guys, like Mikey, the watchman, or Vinny, who looks like a young Paul Newman? Yes. Or, or Bobby uh, G? Uh, yes. So I, I just, uh, something just flashed right in front of me. When I first started doing this project, I would go around and give uh, the workers that I photographed these eight by 10 glossies that I would do in my darkroom. And I remember one morning I went into the tin building, the, they used to call it the old market building, and I was going to give this photographed my eight by 10 to this guy called Jimmy Red. And he wasn't at the stand. So one of the workers, Charlie the Greek says, he ain't here no more, Barbara, you know, he's gone. And what does that mean? You know, he was murdered the night before. That's the story. Well, anyway, there, there must be a bunch of them. I wish we had time for all of them. But but as I say, those pictures are just so powerful. People should really look at this book. Now, uh, let's move on for time's sake to part two. There, there's no particular place that dominates your photographs of the 1990s, like like the the Fulton Fish Market dominated the 80s. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think, what's the theme that you think unites the photographs that you collect in the second section? Well, uh, Carl Weisbrot of the Downtown Alliance characterized Lower Manhattan in the 90s as a place of uncertainty and decay. So looking at a lot of my images um, that were personal to me, it, his, his point of view fit right in with the kind of photographs I was taking. For example, walking around the Bowery and seeing like global, seeing places where you, they sold restaurant supplies and meat slicer shops and all of these warehouses that were condemned, that uh, mysterious fires broke out. And so that is what is the glue, the, the uncertainty, a clock that never moved in time, security guards walking around in the fog with nobody there, you know. So it's like, 
you know, as a as a visual artist, it's it's important. I think good photographers use images as metaphors for mm-hmm. something else. You know, the something I didn't know that you write about in this book is that there were a lot of fires, suspicious fires that were set at Lower Manhattan in the nineties, kind of like happened in the Bronx in the seventies, yeah, apparently yeah, by yeah. by uh by the landlords themselves. But, but we don't we're not gonna claim that because we don't know. But the fact of the matter is that some of the photographs that you take of of the fires are just, I mean, those are terrible things, but they're beautiful. And there's one particularly that I'm thinking of. It's the one where you see the Twin Towers in the background, where the oh, smoke is coming up like yes, a fog. Yes, you take apparently yes. uh, behind yes. uh, behind a bridge. It, it, it's beautiful. I, I feel guilty for thinking that this fire, this terrible fire, is a beautiful thing. I, I, should I feel guilty? Uh, no. Because, you know, we find beauty in everything, you know, and all you have to do is look and really look. But that particular fire was in 1996, and that was the arson, supposedly, at the tin building, at the old fish market. And that fire was so huge that it enveloped the whole lower Manhattan. So what I did... Uh, I was home that day. I used to do a lot of darkroom work. Um, I ran up on the bridge and photographed it against the World Trade Center, not knowing that a few years later. Yeah, yeah, obviously. So let's go to part three. Uh, Part three of the book contains images of the new millennium. And before I look through the book, I assumed that it would be dominated by uh, by 9-11 and the aftermath. But it isn't, even though you have, you know, terrific pictures of 9-11 and the aftermath. Um, it, it doesn't. So so what do you think does tie tie the, the photographs in this section? That's a very good question. I mean, it really is because I thought about this. And again, that's why I put that Jane Jacobs statement in the beginning, because what does it mean when uh, and, and a, a, a metropolis like New York or parts of it go under and how do you come back how do you revive so again some of the photographs that i chose there were very timely well including uh this interview um with a woman who was very intimate with some of these mafia guys uh and their relationship to rudolph giuliani but what ties it really together for me is the coming back and the sad ill-placed conspiracy theories and demonstrations. No, we don't want the Muslim building next to where the World Trade Center once stood. And all of these things, uh, in spite of the challenges, pointed to a new rebirth. Hmm. And in that new rebirth of the building boom and real estate, it's really up to the viewer to decide what we lost, what is falling off, what will continue and endure. As I say, you have a number of, you do have a number of 9-11 related photographs. There's one that you, that you captured the moment where the second thing hit. And there's one the day Mm -hmm. after that you call a glimpse of hell of 9-12 at night, which is, which people have to look at. You also have photographs of, of, uh, of Superstorm Sandy just before it. And then the aftermath but you go back to the Fulton Fish Market in 2005. Yes. In fact, the day before the fish market was moved to the Bronx. How was that for you personally? Oh, it was shake. Look, you know, again, it was like 
the whole experience for me to watch this cyclical thing about life and business and uh, so much um, vitality going on there and then to see it become a shell of itself. It's like, and including the photographs in uh, 2019 of the disintegration of one of the market sheds, the new market building. It's Shakespearean. You know, it's tragic. For me, it was. Because I felt like <laughs> I just learned so much from these men and you know, if you go up to the Bronx, it's a lot of the old timers or the ones that I worked with are either pat they passed, uh, they, they are still remaining in jail, or um, but some of them wanted to leave, and yeah. others really missed it. You know, and and well, it's, course, you know, it's got uh, those photographs have like an, an Edward Hopper kind of sadness and loneliness to them. Again, you know, well, he's I, one I, of I'm my your heroes. PR person here. I'm selling yeah. these photographs, yeah. and we only have we have less than a minute, so please, oh, uh, as uh, brief uh, as you can make. I want to <laughs> ask the final question, which is, right. what did the passage of time captured in all these pictures? One, you put once you put them all together, what did they reveal to you that perhaps you didn't know before about change in time and its effects on us? And we got about 30 seconds 40 seconds the the whole point of the book is that it's almost like a rhetorical thing it's up to us what we save what we preserve what we let go of and i'm just a vessel you know all i did was present the pictures and it's up to the viewer to really think long and hard well, I tell you, that's that's what it does. That's what it does when you look Thank at this you. book, A Falling Off Place, The Transformation of Lower Manhattan. I recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Barbara. It Thank was an absolute there. pleasure. And have me back. I have more to say. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. For four generations, the Fian family has been at the heart of the New York City Fire Department. From the dawn of the motorized fire truck, to the 1970s when the Bronx was burning, to the devastation of the September 11th attacks of Fian has worn the FDNY patch. First Deputy Commissioner Bill Fian was the highest ranking member of the department killed on 9-11, and two decades later, his legacy lives on thanks in part to his family. Their extraordinary service and how it reflects the history of the department is the foundation of author Brian McDonald's new book, Five Floors Up, the heroic family story of four generations in the FDNY. Brian McDonald joins us now. Brian, welcome to the program. Hi, Raphael. Nice, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So, so Brian, first of all, and very quickly, why is the title of the book Five Floors Up? Uh, what's the significance of those words of the story you tell? And particularly, what did they say about the dangers that firefighters face every day? So the second generation, the main uh, person in the story is Chief William Fian, as you said, um, in the early 70s, he was promoted to captain and assigned to a firehouse in Harlem. And the 70s was the time when the Bronx was burning, but it wasn't only the Bronx. Other neighborhoods in the city were on fire also, uh, as was the neighborhood he was assigned to. And he walked into the firehouse the first time to see uh, this crew of firefighters he was going to lead naked, sitting at a table. It was their way of uh, giving him the initiation 
He didn't say a word. He passed the initiation. He just got his meal, went up to his office. But they used to fight that where this uh, neighborhood where the firehouse was, was lined with these five-story tenement buildings. And firefighters will tell you tenement buildings are one of the toughest fires to fight. You know, there's, there's small hallways, uh, stairs, they're made out of wood, lots of windows. So um, when they'd get a call at a, at a, a tenement, they would say, you know, our luck is going to be, it's going to be on the fifth floor, five floors deep into the apartment, which would be the toughest place to go. So they came up with the expression, five floors up, five rooms deep. And that's how I uh, got the title for the book. Yeah, and, and, and actually, one of the things that your book really underlines is just really, we all know it, but your sh book shows it, how dangerous it is for these men every day. But anyway, let, let's move on. As we've, as we've said, the, the chief protagonist of your narrative is, is Chief Bill Fian, and we'll get even more into his story in a moment. But you start... Uh, with uh, with the story of his father, William Patrick Fian, the man who began this firefighting dynasty. Tell us a little bit about him and how he reflected the FENY of his time. So he was a latecomer to the. I mean, there were circumstances surrounding it. He was the youngest of 10 children of an Irish immigrant family, and he took care of his mother till she died. So he joined the department when he was 34. He was a latecomer. But as soon as he got into the department, he knew what he wanted to do. He was he was ferocious as a firefighter. You know, one of the things I found out in the fire interviewing firefighters, there's a, a class of firefighter who will stay as a firefighter, will not look to be promoted because they love the action of running into burning buildings. Has nothing to do with, uh, uh, you know, any ambition to get ahead or anything. They want to fight fires. And William Fian, the first William Fian was definitely that kind of firefighter. He had what I like to call the hero gene. You know, he'd run into a burning building to save somebody he didn't know um, uh, with no regard for his own safety. And he was hospitalized. I believe he was hospitalized at least four times. Um, yeah. and it was a dangerous time to be a firefighter, for sure. So, so his son was also a hero. But unlike his father, I don't know if he had ambition, but, but he, tell us a little bit about him. Give us the highlights of Chief uh, Fian's uh, FDNY career. A remarkable career, a, a unique career. He was the only firefighter and only member of the fire department to hold every rank in the department, including fire commissioner for a short time in the 1990s during the Dinkins administration. I think his wife had a lot to do with it, she, uh, him not staying, because I think he would have stayed as a firefighter too. He loved the action, but he wanted to start a family and his wife was uh, forced to be reckoned with at home and she wanted to make more money. I mean, firefighters were woefully underpaid. And, you know, when you're trying to raise a family on that kind of a salary, you have to uh, not only uh, go up the ladder, but you have to work second jobs and firefighters are famous. New York City, uh, firefighters across the country actually are famous for moonlighting and other jobs. And Chief Fian was no exception. He had to do it to, because of the kids and yeah. tuition. So, so, but let's turn to 9-11, which, which obviously, I mean, I think our, our viewers would guess it's the most moving and powerful section of your book. Um, as you write, on learning uh, on the morning of 9-11 that his father had rushed to the Twin Towers, Chief Fian's son, Billy, uh, calmed his concerns about his dad by reasoning that someone so high in the chain of command and 71 years old to boot would not be put in harm's way. But of course, he was put in harm's way and he paid the ultimate price for being right there in the middle of it all. How did that happen? 
I mean, how does a 71 year old deputy commissioner end up in the thick of it? You know, the way I was thinking of it when I was reading your book was like if as if Eisenhower had been in one of those mm. landing boats on D-Day. How did that happen? You know, I write in a book that his face felt the heat of a thousand fires. Now, people have taken me to task a little bit on that, but he worked in very busy firehouses. So that if it's an exaggeration, it's not much of one. But he didn't know any other way. And when Billy, his son, at first believed that his father would be safe, on further consideration, he knew that his father was going to be right in the midst of it. There was no no choice. Uh, when the, he was in the North Tower, and the North Tower was the first uh, command post, and uh, Chief uh, um, Commissioner Von Essen uh, didn't want him there, told somebody to say, well, this is no place for a 71-year-old. And Von Essen went over to Bill Fian, Chief Fian, and, and said, listen, let's let's put you somewhere where you could you know, manage things. And, uh, and uh, Chief Fian had some very short words to Von Essen. Yeah. Uh, that translated means uh, you got to be kidding me. And, and, to, and, and as you're right, and to add insult to injury, uh, the commissioner actually asked him to to give another firefighter his helmet. That didn't go so well. No, it didn't go so well. <laughs> he might as well ask him for his pants. You know, it was not gonna it was not gonna fly. And uh, as it turned out, he was uh, you know after the first tower came down. Uh, it severely damaged the Marriott Hotel. There were firefighters trapped in the Marriott, and Bill Fian, along with Chief Gancy, the chief of the department, and Ray Downey, a legendary fire chief, were orchestrating a, a rescue operation for firefighters stuck uh, trapped in the Marriott Hotel, and and that's when the North Tower came down and killed killed all three of them. So, well, you know, at least his family has the consolation of knowing that that Chief Fian that would have been the way that he had wanted to go from everything that you're right. It seems that's the truth, correct? Yeah, yeah. Billy went, the next day, Billy went, uh, Billy uh, Jr., uh, he's not a junior, but the uh, younger Billy went to see where his dad was killed. And, you know, in the pile, it was just, it was still a crime scene. It was a smoking, uh, very dangerous place. But he got to where his father was uh, killed, the spot, and he said he could have stayed there all night. He said he felt like it was his father's last breath hung in the air, you know, and uh, and it was very emotional. He tells the story 21 years later and, and the tears come come down. Well, you know, uh, Brian, throughout your book, you write about a number of fires uh, that occurred over the years in the city, uh, fires which contain lessons that if they had been heated, hmm. would probably have saved a lot of lives on 9-11, certainly a lot of lives of firefighters. Um, what were those lessons that weren't heated? Why were they not heated? And have they been heated since 9-11? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, the short answer is yes. I had a, um, I, I did an event with uh, Chief uh, Joseph Pfeiffer, who was the first chief in, if you remember, the um, uh, French filmmakers were following a chief that day. Chief Pfeiffer was that chief, a remarkable man, a hero, American hero. And he worked tirelessly to solve some of the problems that uh, showed on 9-11, on including the uh, communication between the agencies. There were, there were police and police helicopters over the buildings warning uh, the police command that the buildings weren't going to come down. And that warning never got to the fire department. So, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of culture differences between the two departments, but it was just it was just the, the structure was off. The structure was wrong. And they've uh, done, a um, you know, enormous amount of repair in that regard. You know, God forbid it should happen again. But it, that, the same thing is not going to happen. That happened. So the, the communications was key. But there was also, as you point out in the book, 
there were signs that skyscrapers, you know, faced with severe fires could be vulnerable. But people thought that they wouldn't be even as late as 9-11. Well, now they in, in 93, Chief Fian, who was first deputy commissioner in 1993, went to uh, the World Trade Center bombing that blew a seven story deep hole under the building. And even he was convinced that these buildings would never come down. The, the terrorists wanted to knock down the building. They wanted to explode at the bottom. They thought the first building would hit the second building in a domino fashion and go. That was their uh, that was their aim, but uh, it didn't happen. So Finn was uh, pretty, pretty uh, confident that the building would come down. However, there were a uh, he responded to a fire called a new uh, one New York Plaza fire was a skyscraper in the financial district. And uh, the fire had warped the um, the struts, the, uh, the, the, the infrastructure. You know, yeah, the structure of it. And and that building would have come down had the fire, you know, been as yeah. as hot as the fire in the, yeah. in the World Trade Center. In your book, you briefly also talk about two other generations of, of Fee. And, you know, there is uh, his son, John, and his son-in-law, Brian. Uh, Devin, I think that's how you pronounce Devin. it. Plus, yeah. plus his grandson, uh, yes. young, uh, um, uh, what's his name? What's his name? Connor. 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 Um, and they reflect the same kind of, of, of qualities, exceptional qualities that uh, that Shifian did. But you also write in the book that the FDNY didn't always or does, is an, it had had his own problem, had qualities not so exemplary, sexism, racism, uh, nepotism. Um, have those problems been overcome? Yeah, I think they're uh, slowly but surely. I mean, uh, nobody's going to accuse the uh, fire department of being ahead of the curve when it comes to representing the city they they represent. Uh, but uh, in Connor's class, there was the most women passed the uh, uh, academy and went on to the fire department. It, it was also a test that over 50 percent of the applicants were minority. And that's that's a that's a great, great uh, uh, service for the city that that we're getting a fire department like that. So, yeah, it's changing slowly, but it's changing. So, you know, finally, Brian, um, with the FDA and why modernizing and making the changes that you just mentioned. Um, do you think that a dynasty like the Fians, uh, we will continue to see them in the future? Or do you think those dynasties are actually a thing of the past? I don't think they'll be like Irish families or, or Italian families like you see. Uh, I mean, I think the, that there's a chance for that to happen. But just recently, I was reading about a three generation black family of New York City firefighters and you know, being one of the things that I was um, that really surprised me about doing the research on the book is how much fun firefighters have. Yes, they have dangerous jobs, no doubt about it. But all of them love to go to work. And when the kids see their parents going to work, loving to go, that makes the kids want to do what the parents did. And that's why these generations uh, occur in the fire. Thank you so much for joining us and for book. It's a wonderful book. Five floors up. I hope a lot of people go out and buy it. Thank you, Brian. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.